0: Hello and welcome to Workforce, a podcast where we uncover the science and behaviours behind things that happen in the workplace that impact your success, blending academic evidence and real-life experiences. I'm your host, Dr Grace Lorden, author of Think Big, Take Small Steps and Build the Future You Want. And for our very first episode, we are asking, should managers be extinct? Now
1: have come to recognise that I don't always make the best decision.
2: If we have an intellectually humble leader, we're going to see a trickle down where the team becomes more intellectually humble. They're all going
3: to be listening better to one another. We've got to now start looking at the pandemic as a catalyst for positive change. We don't want to waste this opportunity. Historians are going to look back on this time as an inflection point in our history.
0: Do you have a manager who micromanages, loves to call unnecessary meetings and adds little value themselves? Well, this episode is for you. We are asking, do we really need managers? I've lined up some fascinating guests to convince us that we do not. And today I'm waiting in my own confirmation bias because I do believe that we need to at least rethink the role of the manager, moving away from regular check-in meetings to give colleagues more autonomy, leaving room for managers to add direct value themselves. I like the idea of managers delegating tasks and saying three things. One, come back to me if you need help or support. Two, come back to me if you make a mistake. Or three, come back to me if you get stuck or it looks like things aren't working out. Other than that, you have full autonomy to do the task your way. And I look forward to chatting to you when you reach a milestone. Before we hear what our guests today have to say, let's hear from Teresa Almeida, a fantastic behavioural scientist from the London School of Economics. Teresa, you work with me very closely at LSE. What are your views on all of this?
4: So today I think I'm interested about two things. The first one is the traditional management hierarchy as a power structure. Is it still suitable for work? Is it going to be suitable in the future? Um, And the second thing I'm interested in is, are there jobs and tasks which we're doing, which we don't have to, that really do bad things for productivity? Is there a better way of rearranging how we spend our time?
0: So what do you think? What's your gut feeling? Do you think that the traditional hierarchy is something that's appealing to you to work in today?
4: Not to me, but I think it is appealing to a lot of people who crave structure. Mm -hmm. And I think it's something that we're familiar with. So I'm interested to hear about what other ways are there to have a structure at work.
0: Amazing. Well, we've heard from Teresa. So now let's hear from Henry Stewart, who is the chief happiness officer at Happy, a company which seeks to create organisations where people feel trusted and empowered. Is one way to do this scrapping the traditional management hierarchy? I was really interested to talk to Henry because he certainly seems to think so. In fact, his organisation has totally scrapped the traditional system of a management hierarchy. I was keen to find out from him what exact changes have been made and why.
1: So the first principle is that managers should coach rather than tell people what to do. So we don't have managers, but we do have what we call M&Ms, mentors and multipliers. And what they do is support and coach people. Because let, let's let say, you know, your listeners get a post-it on their keyboard from their manager saying, I want to see you at 2pm. Do you feel excited by that?
0: It feels like something Jacob Rees-Mark
1: would do. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. So, so for, for our people, I mean, I've just got a, a little note here from, from a woman called Lydia. I love my sessions with Cathay. I always feel my one-to-one make me more excited and inspired than when I went in. And that's what you want to get yeah. from, from a session with your coach. I, as, as, as kind of boss of the company, I'm actually chief happiness officer at, at Happy. Oh, I love that. So I decided, I think it was in 2017, to stop making decisions. Right. And the reason I decided that was there was a guy called David Marquette. Do you know David Marquette? Yes. Um, Yeah. 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 He was commander of a U.S. Navy submarine. And he decided that instead of him telling 135 crew members what to do, he would instead get them to decide what to do, except for firing the missiles. If the missiles were fired, then that would be his his responsibility. So I was on the panel with David Marquette in in, uh, Copenhagen. And I thought that sounds like a fabulous idea. So I came back to the UK. And uh, since then, I hope I've made no decisions, or certainly very few. And what, what instead of me making decisions, you push the decisions down to the front line. So that people themselves decide what they're going to do.
0: So you're giving them autonomy both in decision making and in how they go about their tasks on a day to day basis?
1: Absolutely. So, yeah, absolutely. Shall I give you an example? Yeah. Uh, so uh, we've, we had uh, John and Ben decided that our prices weren't what they should be. It wasn't particularly their responsibility, but they decided that they wanted to make it their responsibility. Um, so they asked around a bit. They asked me what I thought about it. I, <laughs> I suggested that the prices that they were setting was not what I would uh, I would think of. Um, but they went ahead with it because it was their responsibility. And I have to say that since those prices took effect, if they hadn't taken effect, we probably wouldn't have survived the pandemic. Um, because I, as uh, head of the company, have been been there for 35 years. I'm far too wedded to old pricing back 30 years ago, uh, whereas they are in full touch with the, the clients. They, they know uh, what the competition does. And so they are. The people who are most likely to, to make the right decisions.
0: So, do you have job titles, Henry? That that defer status, even though you don't have managers. So, do you kind of have a hierarchy in in in, in that way, or do people just not have job titles at all?
1: Uh, people choose their own job titles. So, oh, wow,
0: <laughs> that is awesome.
1: <laughs> um, so, yeah, um, so they choose whatever, whatever they like. It's up to them.
0: Henry told me about his belief in the four-day working week and the impact this has had on productivity at all levels at Happy. I don't disbelieve him, but I do wonder what the rigidity means for some folk, example those who have caring responsibilities, or those who might want to spread their work over seven days to accommodate other responsibilities. Or perhaps there are folk out there who would happily surf and brunch every morning, starting at 1pm and working into the wee hours of the evening. This level of flexibility does not work for a barrister but could work well for a research analyst or a programmer. Henry also had a lot to say about meetings. He really believed that we should have fewer of them, and I couldn't agree more. I did like his style. He bunches most meetings into one day each month, leaving him free the rest of the month for more spontaneous chats with employees and perhaps even surfing and brunch. Fewer meetings and enhanced flexibility definitely require increased collegial trust. Let's hear what Henry has to say about improving trust in his organisation, Happy.
1: Step away from being that manager, that micromanages or tells people what to do. Once people have real ownership, then they just, they're just working it themselves. So you, were, as I say, we have three teams. So it isn't the manager that tells people what to do. It's the teams that work out for themselves how to get stuff done. And if you tell people what to do, they won't take that. They won't take that responsibility. The crucial thing is about mistakes. So we at Happy, we believe in celebrating mistakes.
0: How do you celebrate? What do you do? <laughs>
1: give them a hug or whatever you know um <laughs> the problem with the mistakes is normally the cover-up if you get a mistake right at the at the moment it happens you know you can you can normally deal with it straight away but if it's if, if there's a cover-up then that's that's, normal, that's a much uh deeper problem
0: so henry talked a lot about the need for managers to get better at letting go and to embrace making mistakes these seem like two qualities of a good manager Teresa, are there any other qualities that you would like to add to this
4: list? I think other sets of qualities that are important are being open to new ideas, appreciate others, and really being willing to listen to feedback. And in the literature, all of these relate to humility.
0: So Teresa has mentioned humility. One of my favourite academic experts in this area is Elizabeth Mancuso, a professor at Seaver College at Pepperdine University in Malibu. Elizabeth has done extensive research on humility and along with her co-author, Malika Bengen, has even coined the term intellectual humility. So what's the relevance of intellectual humility in the context of organisational structures in the workplace? Well, Elizabeth's research found that leaders with particularly high levels of intellectual humility resulted in staff feeling more confident to put their ideas forward, to make mistakes and share their opinion without worrying about being shut down or ridiculed. She found that managers with intellectual humility create synergy in teams with employees being more creative as a result of all the different ideas and perspectives they feel safe to bring to the table. That's pretty good motivation to increase our levels of intellectual humility, right? It seems like one of the
2: threads that kind of is running through this is is finding ways to help people decrease their defense mechanisms to feel more open, to feel less threatened in order to recognize that they might not always be correct, right? That they might have things to learn.
0: So if I could imagine myself being in a team in one point in time that has a leader with high levels of intellectual humility and at another point of time being in a team with a leader who has low levels of intellectual humility, what are the different experiences that I'm likely to have under those two types of leadership? What will I see that's actually different?
2: Yeah, so I think when you are part of a team with a leader who is high in intellectual humility, you're going to see that leader being able to uh, listen to others, right? Not assuming that he or she has the best ideas just because... Uh, This person has the best credentials in the room, right? They're going to be soliciting and carefully listening to other people's perspectives. They're going to be wanting to hear about other people's descriptions of problems and solutions. Uh, They want to be able to uh, change their minds, right? If, if there's a reason to do so. Um, And they're not going to feel emotionally threatened when other people offer opinions, even when those individuals are more junior to them and the organizational structure. And so uh, from a team member's perspective, If I were a team member, I would be much more open to sharing my perspectives in a context like that. I would be open uh, to offering ideas and not fearing that they are going to be shut down or uh, ridiculed. And so when leaders come in with an intellectually humble perspective, it creates a synergy in teams that they are going to be more creative because they are bringing out more ideas and more perspectives, right? If you think of problem solving or brainstorming, those types of processes are going to be much better in a context in which people are willing uh, to acknowledge that other people's perspectives have value, which the first step of that is to realizing that your own perspective is not the only perspective or the best perspective at any given time. Um, And so that's likely to elicit the best out of a team right, versus a leader who does not model intellectual humility uh, in a situation like that, um, we're not going to see those downstream effects where individuals are able to become more intellectually humble as a team because the leader is modeling that, right? We're typically through observational learning, when a leader is not intellectually humble, we might see more of a top-down approach. We're going to see less follower-oriented leadership where, uh, again, with intellectually humble leaders, what we really see is that they take more of a follower-centered approach in their leadership. Uh, they're able to show more empathy toward leaders. And when you have more of a top-down approach, it might shut down the conversation more easily where people are going to be less willing to share their perspectives because they don't sense that those perspectives are valued. And so I think you're just going to see a decrease in both creativity and productivity in most contexts.
0: If you want to hear more on Elizabeth's ideas on this topic, you can read their brilliant article titled Cultivating Intellectual Humility in Leaders, Potential Benefits, Risks and Practical Tools in the American Journal of Health. And details are in the show notes. You can also listen to highlights of our conversation I have with Elizabeth for this episode on my YouTube channel. But to give you the headlines, Elizabeth told me that the term intellectual humility refers to a person's ability to recognize and accept what they think, what they know, and what they believe is not always accurate, or there might be gaps in their knowledge. Elizabeth also talks about intellectual humility being very much a state, not a trait, in that our level of intellectual humility can fluctuate from context to context, and depending on who we're with, or what the topic of situation is, we might exhibit different levels of humility. Well, so far we have not heard any arguments that managers should be extinct, which is quite disappointing. But our next guest is about to shake things up a bit. I had a great conversation with Rob Pierre, co-founder and chairman of Jellyfish. Jellyfish is an awesome global business that partners with brands to achieve and optimize their marketing performance. And they now have over 2,250 employees across 42 offices globally. The reason I wanted to speak to Rob for this episode is Jellyfish have no managers. Yes, Jellyfish has turned the traditional pyramid hierarchy on its head and instead gives employees the opportunity for growth through what they call career stages. Rob pointed out that this allows for progression without power. You do not need a boss above you to give you a green light for you to move up the ranks only when they deem you to be ready. So how it is possible that in this huge organisation with offices all over the world, with no managers giving orders, somehow all of the work is still getting done to a high level? What the team at Jellyfish have demonstrated is that autonomy afforded to employees by matching their skills and passion to corresponding tasks means people are taking full accountability for their work, regardless of seniority level throughout the company. So there is actually no need for managers. So what replaces the traditional boss? Employees have a support network.
5: We specifically tell people that they don't have line managers or bosses, they have a support network. So everybody has a capability partner, a people partner and a mentor, and that they're there to support, not to lead. And therefore you only take initiatives that you can lead and take accountability for. What it creates is it creates an environment and a dynamic where people are learning to take full accountability and positive and negative consequences of their actions on a day-to-day basis. Now, I'm not saying that we've got you know 2,200 people, and you know we've done this. We've got statistical significance with this system. It's not just a test. It's not a, a theory. We're doing it, but it's not perfect because, like you said, there are some people that aren't not yet embracing it because it impacts their um, almost the Ponzi scheme mentality yeah. where everything feeds under me and I just grow without adding any value necessarily it's just because I've recruited the right people that's not happening and so yeah I think it's um it's it's working very well and um, it's still we're constantly refining it and historically we've been much better at acknowledging and rewarding the right outcomes and so the positive, consequences, uh, oh, sorry, the the, the consequences that are positive, we have been great at reiterating that and reinforcing that and rewarding that. What's been difficult is that when you don't have line managers monitoring, holding people to account when it's negative, so the negative consequences of not Doing something in an appropriate way, or um, dedicating the right amount of effort or energy, etc., that's a little bit trickier. But then we're, we're addressing that by feeding information. Information in um, about your performance is how we're tackling it. No different to having like a Fitbit or an Apple Watch that you know, if you set yeah. the goal to do ten thousand steps, it just reminds you. You've only done eight thousand, and if and and if on the third day you've only done eight thousand, and it doesn't change your behaviour, then maybe you're not the right person to 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 achieve that goal, and you're not self motivated, and that's where you could get a support network helping you. But ultimately, it's down to you. Do you passionately want to achieve that goal, and are you doing everything in within your capability to achieve that. That's what we're trying to create an environment where everybody's contributing to the community and genuinely trying to achieve the goals that they set out to achieve.
0: Utterly delighted to have discovered a manager-free company. I was really excited to ask Rob more questions about the wider impact on an organization and the traditional management hierarchy is scrapped. Do you lose anything, Rob, with losing the idea of managers? Because I guess traditionally we thought being a manager motivated people. It gave them status. It replaced perhaps higher income or something else you could give them. Have you found that motivation is higher or lower since you've moved to this, um, this, this new hierarchy?
5: It's higher for the right people and lower for the wrong people. Okay. And But when I say the, the wrong people, um, that's power. I think a lot of people, um, the notion that I've got 500 people under me, that's a statement I just really do not buy into. Um, But also knowledge is power. So people think with seniority, if you're exposed to certain information, that gives you power and you decide who's privy to that information and who you expose to that information. Being able to be the custodian of somebody's career and whether they progress or not based on your subjective opinions that's power and so anybody who's power hungry in a in a traditional pyramid hierarchy system is not going to succeed and is demotivated by the jellyfish way leaders People who want to share information, people who want to empower others, people who get satisfaction from watching other people succeed. And if they have more aptitude, skills, experience in a certain area, like I say, not delegating, because delegating holds on to the power and gives somebody else the responsibility. I'm talking about distributed accountability. Genuinely saying that person is more appropriate to take on the uh, the task and to take ownership of it, I am distributing that accountability. All the blame, all the credit, all the benefit goes to that individual that you've distributed that accountability to. So I think slowly but surely we're transitioning to a point where we have leaders, not managers, who believe that the value they added to the company is either monitoring, managing, having in some cases pointless one-to-one meetings where the person who's actually facilitating the task has to give you a full report on what they're doing and there's no value exchange. You can give nothing back. All it is is that I'm your boss, so I get to question what you're doing. And then we kind of get the Dunning-Kruger impact, which is you know, yeah. the impact of you're more confident about a subject, the less you know, and then you start getting this whole scenario where it's just a complete waste of time, the conversation. So yeah, we, we, we're managing to avoid that and the right people are motivated.
0: I love the common theme underpinning Robin Henry's take on the topic of managers. We need to move away from command and control towards harnessing the power of specific skills and interests of individual employees. Our next guests take this one step further. Lizzie Penny and Alex Hurst are two friends, entrepreneurs and experts on autonomous working. They're connected by their negative experiences of a nine to five traditional work week, and together they have coined the term work style, which they've written about in their book Work Style, a revolution for wellbeing, productivity and society. When Lizzie and Alex talk about work style, they're talking about people having autonomy to choose the best of working for them. Some of us like a quiet environment to work in. Some of us prefer a co-working space. For some people, it's a luxury to work from home, surrounded by creature comforts with cups of tea on tap without the obligation to make one for the whole office. Or maybe the beach is your ideal workspace. We've heard about empowering people to utilise their individual skills, rendering the role of managers obsolete. But for Lizzie and Alex, it's about the individualisation of work itself.
3: The concept of work style is... It's a word that we created, funny enough, in the pub. But a word we created, because we need a word, now that so much of the work we do can be done anywhere and at any time, we need a word to describe our individual preference and choice for when and where we work. So we believe everybody should have the freedom to choose when and where they work for themselves, so that they can fit their work around their life, rather than the other way around. So, your remote,
0: so if I was to ask you to kind of vote on... Do we believe in buildings that people should be filing into them on a long commute versus remote first? From what you said, I can take away that that you you believe in remote first.
6: Well, we actually believe in the individualization of work. So work style is all about autonomy and the freedom to choose. So for some people that might be going into a co-working space or a shared place of work. For some people, it would be working from home, working from a beach. Um, for other people, it will be a mixture of both those things. So the thing that we try and do is put the power back in the hands of the individual. And we know that that's better for well-being, better for productivity and better for society to do it that way. Can you share a
0: bit uh, to me about your view of the future of the office? And I'm particularly interested in... What you say to people who say, but we need these water cooler moments. Without the water cooler moments, we're not going to be as creative. We're not going to be as innovative. And that's why we want everybody in the office.
6: Yeah. So I think what you are talking about there is connection, essentially, and the the way that we connect and have those serendipitous moments. I think the first thing we would say is that more than half of Brits suffer from loneliness in the workplace, So let's not mistake being in the same room as someone as being connected to someone. You might be sitting at a cubicle with everyone next to you on Zoom calls to different people and make no connection at all. So I think for us, this is about choosing to connect with people. We know that autonomy increases productivity. You are more productive if you're working on your terms in your way. So actually that coming together needs to be much more about breaking bread, as Brian Elliott puts it in his book, about basically bringing people together to forge these deep connections to have fun laugh sing perhaps dance um, rather than to try and work together in the same space
0: so can i ask you so if you think about people who insist that we need to be in the office so we need to be in the office i know you say nine to five now in london it could be you know eight to seven or eight to eight, eight to eight so they want you in the office um i'm working with them what drives that behavior have you thought about that when you were researching work style what drives people to want to tell people what to do and want to mandate rather than give autonomy and accountability that you're advocating for I mean, I think a lot of it goes back to history
6: and and we touch on this in the book because I think it's fascinating in terms of the background to all of this. The Nine to Five Working Day dates back to the Industrial Revolution and the great social reformer Sir Robert Owen, who came up with the concept of eight hours labour, eight hours recreation and eight hours rest, which at the time was massively progressive. But we think frankly he'd be turning in his grave to know that we're still working that way all these years later. And unlearning those elements, there are still massive, you know, societal implications. We kick off football matches at three PM because of the Factories Act of 1850. You know, so there are yes. still elements that, that reside that when we don't live in in that industrial revolution anymore, we live in a digital age, and we can fundamentally change the way that we work in order to be, be fit for that digital age. And yet, the legacy of that kind of those 200 years of working in a certain way, we just can't seem to get away from it because there hasn't been enough radical change until the pandemic. Let's imagine now that
0: I bring you into a company today and they have the traditional work week. They have a traditional work week in a very extended way. So people are getting in there at eight and they're leaving their desks around 7.30 p.m. And they've had this kind of revelation. Actually, what they want to give is autonomy. What they want to give is accountability. And they want to be remote first under the definition that people choose to be remote Unless they feel the value of coming into the workplace, so kind of really the kind of what what works what works I would like to see. What are the conditions that you would tell somebody that they need to get in place in order to enable their workers to work in a work style fashion?
3: There are three. They are that the organisation needs to be digital first, asynchronous, and trust based. You talk about um, remote first. There, um, what we're talking about is enabling. Uh, work style enabling autonomy and and individual choice. So, being digital first means being assuming that collaboration happens digitally first rather than physically first. So we collaborate in a digital space, um, and that can be a bit of a mindset shift. But actually, the adoption of technologies like Slack and, and things that have really boomed over the last few years in terms of uh, adoption rates as a result of the pandemic, mean that actually most collaboration is probably happening happening digitally first anyway. Uh, what's not happening is the second condition, which is asynchronous. So asynchronous is let's not assume we need to be working at the same time. Let's start by assuming that none of us work at the same time. And not only will that save us uh, a huge amount of time scheduling meetings, uh, but it also means that we can access work when it suits us as individuals and therefore we can bring our best work to the table. And the third thing is about investing in a trust-based culture. So uh, that's about assuming that you can trust one another. Um, and that that's really a, a, a lot of the, the crux of this, really. And when we go into organizations and we look at the relationship between leadership and the, the wider workforce, really it's trust that is uh, the point of contention, and the workforce having experienced um, remote working during the pandemic wants to be trusted to work with more autonomy. Leadership struggles to let go of, of control, which requires that they trust individuals to, to work to to deliver what they say they're going to deliver.
0: You've mentioned there, Alex, the dreaded M word, so meetings. So I really want to get your opi- op- opinion of meetings. You said because we're asynchronous, it, it really helps with meetings. How does it help? Are you are you someone who's saying we should have less meetings?
3: We are. I mean, we don't need meetings really. Um, <laughs>
0: <laughs> I really want a t-shirt that says that. We don't need meetings. We don't need meetings,
3: I have to we say, don't need
0: meetings Grace. We don't need meetings.
3: No, I am guilty. <laughs> I am guilty of being the guy years and years ago where we'd go into a meeting room and I would work out the cost of the meeting um, to almost make the point. I've done that. that was a very ineffective <laughs> use of spend. Um, I, I think that the reality is that in, um, a digital-first, asynchronous, trust-based environment, uh, like HockSpeed, where we've been pioneering work style. Conversations happen around the clock, uh, but they happen in written form or in the exchange of audio or video clips. They don't happen with groups of people together at the same time, very often at all. And that's because it's asynchronous first. And we find that that actually is not only better for, I mean it's better in so many ways but it's, it's better in terms of being able to act, get the benefit of all of the perspectives of the people who are in the conversation very often meetings tend to favor the predominant voice within the group or the highest level of the hierarchy um, it certainly can favor more extrovert personalities so working digitally first and asynchronously really enables you to extract the cognitive diversity of the group
0: We are once again hearing about the need for trust and for leaders to relinquish control. Henry Stewart mentioned earlier that he schedules all his meetings for the month on one day. Later in our conversation with Lizzie and Alex, they took Henry's for meetings one step further, going as far as to say meetings ought to be scrapped altogether. They say they do not sit well within the conditions necessary to support an individualized approach to work style. They argue that meetings force multiple people to be available for a meeting at the same time, whether all of those people are in the mood for a meeting or not and this likely results in an imbalance in participation as it's often the voices of the more extroverted personalities that cut through. I'm not so sure about this one. I think it's possible to quieten the extroverts and bring the introverts into the room and think there is a great value in bringing together colleagues once in a while. Let's hear more from Lizzie and Alex. I'm particularly interested in what they have to say about workers who have to be on site, for example, nurses, barristers, baristas and West End performers. Is there any way these people can also benefit from Lizzie and Alex's work style?
6: I would say that this isn't just for knowledge workers as well. For us, work style is not just a structure of work, it's an attitude to work where we recognise and embrace individuality. We judge people on their individual contribution. And I think that mentality can be apply, applied to place-based working as well. Some of our most important workers are place-based. but we've got record high numbers of vacancies in the NHS at the moment, we've got a crisis in staffing in midwifery, could it be that thinking in a work style way could actually address those issues? Because if we start to individualise work, albeit that it needs to be done in a certain place in specific industries, that can actually bring people into those jobs, because it allows them to fit their work around their life, it could be about different approaches to shift patterns, or just about people being more autonomous in the way they approach their work, even if it needs to be done in a certain place. So I think for us, this isn't just restricted to knowledge, the knowledge yeah. economy.
0: And I like that. So kind of getting a bit more imaginative about how you schedule when a person is at, in the place where they need to work, if they are place-based work. So yeah, I, I think that's an amazing point. So work style is about so much more than people being able to start a half an hour work later so they can take their kids to school. It's about improving the well-being and productivity of employees by letting people work in a way that facilitates their best work, including those that have to be on site. Any last thoughts, Teresa, before I wrap things up so I can go and cancel all of my meetings?
4: (laughs) So, So I guess I'm wondering if you're convinced that we should remove all managers.
0: I don't think we should remove all managers. I think we need to have people who are there who delegate tasks. And I think when folk join an organisation in the beginning, that's really important, particularly when they're very young in their career. So Mm -hmm. they, they get delegation and they get support. But I think that the manager really needs to rethink their role. They also need to be adding value. So for me, we need to make extinct the role of the manager where they're just there to manage people and instead replace them with managers who continue to add value and create in the same way that younger colleagues joining the organisation are. I think it's better for the younger colleagues because they get to see people doing what they ultimately want to do. But I also think it's also better for the younger colleagues not to have somebody whose only role is managing so that at some point they're off doing their own thing so they get their autonomy.
4: That makes sense. I think what I I thought interesting was that when we talk about this, it's actually not an operational issue. It's a social one. Everyone talked about autonomy, about people doing what they value or what they like, and not about the structure itself. So maybe the problem is what are we telling people they should be doing at the office as opposed to the structure they're in?
0: So what would you scrap that we're telling people that they should be doing at the office? I think
4: meetings. Let's get rid of them. (laughs) Now, I like that Lizzie and Alex talked about getting rid of emails. I think that will be a de-stressor for lots of people.
0: So we haven't spoken about it on this podcast, but Teresa has been a big advocate for replacing emails with Slack, which has worked out pretty well, I think, for our team.
4: Yeah. And everyone can send memes and I think people are happier. So hopefully that's a good change.
0: Amazing. Thank you so much for listening to our first episode of Workforce. We can only squeeze so much of our guests into the final edit of each episode. So we wanted to make sure that you have access to many highlights from these brilliant contributors who have helped us to bring to you this first episode. The highlights from all of today's guests are available to watch on my YouTube channel. Please head to the show notes for where to find those or follow me on LinkedIn or Instagram where I will be posting the content. A huge thanks to Henry Stewart, Elizabeth Mancuso, Robert Pierre and Lizzie Penny and Alex Hurst for giving us their time and insights and also to Teresa Amida for simply being fabulous. And if you wish managers were extinct because you hate your boss, do check out my FT article in the show notes, What to Do If You Hate Your Bots, that has lots of behavioural science insights to enable you to handle the situation without resigning. This is the bit where I plead for your support. Please give a helping hand in getting workforce in front of more listeners by subscribing, rating and reviewing wherever you are listening to this. We'd also love to hear your questions and ideas for future episode topics. You can contact me anytime through my website on www.gracelorden.com. Big thank you to Decibel Creators for producing this podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Grace Lorden, and I do hope I earned the privilege of your time. Bye for now.